0: Hello, and welcome to the Strategic Finance Lab podcast, home of Neugroup interviews and insights about the future of finance and the office of the CFO. I'm Anthony Michaels, editor of Neugroup Insights. In this week's episode, cryptocurrency expert and self-described Bitcoin evangelist Caitlin Long has a wide-ranging conversation directed at treasury and corporate finance teams with Neugroup founder and CEO Joseph Neu. They discuss the use case for digital assets as a form of payment, the long-term potential of crypto and blockchain technologies, and Caitlin's ongoing face-off with the Federal Reserve around the business model of her newest venture, Custodia Bank. Caitlin's resume includes 22 years in traditional finance, or TradFi, with stints at Solomon Brothers, Credit Suisse, and Morgan Stanley. A Wyoming native, she co-founded the state's blockchain coalition and served on its blockchain task force until 2019. In 2020, she founded Custodia in her home state to function as a bridge between TradFi and blockchain-based decentralized finance, or DeFi. Though not yet operational, the bank plans to function as a non-lending special purpose depository institution that holds 100% cash reserves, which Caitlin says will effectively eliminate the counterparty risk of working with a new small bank. In the podcast, you'll hear why she believes that bank failures, cryptocurrency frauds, and other factors have landed both the TradFi and DeFi worlds at an inflection point and how Custodia could one day represent a solution for corporate treasurers embracing the future of finance. Enjoy the show. Here's Joseph.
1: So, so, Caitlin, you, you and I first met as you became something of a of a blockchain and, and crypto whisperer, and with all that's going on, both in the traditional banking world and, and in the world of digital assets, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to chat with you. So, uh, welcome and and thanks for joining our podcast. Maybe we start uh, with your current role as founder and CEO of Custodia Bank, and maybe you could tell uh, you know what it what what is it and what makes it different from other banks. And as you know. And our audience, which is principally multinational corporate treasurers, you know is there a user story for them in in what you're trying to do at custodia bank?
2: thank you and it's good to be back with you. Yes, I think that was eight or nine years ago when we first connected. I basically retired to go work on this full time, but to answer your question, I, th- there needs to be a safe bridge between these two worlds, and we can't have one industry infect the other and what i mean by that is traditional finance shouldn't infect the decentralized finance world and vice versa we definitely unfortunately saw some of the some some of the, the cross infection i actually think part of uh, part of what happened in the decentralized world was the bank runs in the traditional world which were in part connected to the decentralized world and and so they got it wrong and uh, and and our goal is to get it right if we are a non-operating bank. We we actually have our certificate of authority to operate. But what's interesting is that we may be relevant to everybody because we're a non-lending bank. So most corporate treasurers would never think of taking a counterparty exposure risk to a brand new tiny bank. But if the bank isn't lending and is holding 100% cash reserves, which is what our proposal to the Fed was, then the counterparty credit risk is moot. And it really becomes a question of how how – Big can the payments be. Uh, but we're not operating yet, so stay tuned. Um, we're we're unfortunately uh, the US has taken a big step backwards in on the regulatory front and it slowed everything way down. Uh, and, and we're still trying to break through uh, to get that business model approved. Um, but we will be doing Bitcoin and Ethereum custody. We have the ability, since we have our Certificate of Authority to operate as a state chartered bank, we have the ability to do custody as a bank. So I know from some of the corporate treasurers that I've been talking to over the years that some of you are quietly using Bitcoin and Ethereum and ERC-20 tokens, uh, such as stablecoins. And if you need a bank to provide custody services, uh, then, then we may be able to do that for you. Relatively soon, even if we can't do the U.S. dollar piece.
1: Okay. Yeah. No. I, it, it is a big topic. Uh, uh, you know, just earlier today with our, our digital uh, digital assets working group, there was conversations about that very thing. So it, it's really amazing how you know, with all the 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 noise around uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and the digital asset world, which Seemingly is negative that there, there's a lot going on in the mainstream corporate world, which I, I find fascinating.
2: Right. Well, and most of that negative news is justified. Let me put that out there. I'm not, you're not going to see me defending the vast majority of this industry. I started writing for Forbes in 2018, warning that crypto and leverage do not mix, period. And boy, have a lot of people had to learn that lesson hard. <laughs> uh, and there was so much fraud. I, I, I have publicly disclosed I was working with law enforcement on. One of the big frauds uh, because I had evidence as of last summer that I started handing over to law enforcement uh, that, that that was a fraud. And, uh, and then also just quietly behind the scenes, working with the bank regulators warning. One of the things that, again, I think your, your audience will appreciate is how fast money can move on the crypto rails. It's literally within the span of minutes. And we're not used to that in the U.S. especially, right? There are real-time mm-hmm. gross settlement payment systems in, in other parts of the world. But in the U.S., it's, it's Fedwire is, is, is your best option right now. And that's ours. And you still don't know exactly. You can't program a Fedwire payment to, to, you know, to hit at 3.59 p.m. Eastern. Right. Um, whereas you can absolutely do that with crypto. And I, I just talked to a company, a, a, a non a crypto entity, a full, full operating company that was, um, that used USDC, a stable coin, to take advantage of a market opportunity that opened up for it in China related to a manufacturing opportunity that if it had had to wait to move the money using traditional rails through Swift, The window of opportunity would have closed and it made 2.6 million dollars because it was willing to use usdc and get the money over to the counterparty immediately so uh this is real world stuff and um and i think what will happen in the payments world is as this becomes mainstream we will see the payments world do very similar things to what the stock market did it used to be in the 90s that you really only had the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and the American Stock Exchange, those were the only venues. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of over-the-counter trading, but it wasn't until, they, until decimal, decimalization came along and then a decentralization of the markets. And now you have dark pools, you have lit pools, you have so many different places where you can execute stock transactions, stock trades. And I think basically the payments world is going to end up that way as well where you'll still do your payroll and your known future vendor payments through ACH in the US. But if you have an opportunity where you need to move money really fast, you're going to turn to a stablecoin. And you're still going to use Fedwire for domestic US dollar payments, uh, or potentially a stablecoin if it's cheaper, it might actually be cheaper. And now here's the other piece. I think last time you had me on Joseph, we talked about Um, optimizing invoice discounting. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that corporate treasurers have not really done yet is model the cost of capital differential between vendors, yourselves, and your customers, and figure out how to optimize based upon the cost of capital differential what is the right time for you to pay an invoice or for you to ask one of your customers to pay you. You can optimize your cash flow. And most, most co- corporate treasurers wouldn't even think of doing that because it's just not worth the effort right now. Most, most, most companies just create a, uh, a policy of, I'll, I'll pay it you know, T plus 60 or, or whatever the policy happens to be. Yeah. But, but for, if there's a big cost of capital differential, it's, it, might, it might be accretive to both parties for you to pay the invoice immediately at a discount. And that means that your small vendor that has a higher cost of capital doesn't have to finance its working capital with super expensive capital. Uh, no. There was a lot of inv- invoice discounting that got done during the 2008 financial crisis, but not in any modeled way. And now I think because you're going to have more than just a Fedwire and ACH option for payments, you're going to be able to optimize when is the right time to make a payment. And you're going to, this whole question of working capital, I think in the next five years is going to become a hot topic again for corporate treasurers because you now have the ability to use those optimizations, which we've always known are theoretically out there, but nobody's really bothered to put the operations in place to do that optimization. Now, when you've got multiple different payment rail choices, it becomes a very different analysis and you can, you can become a, a revenue generator rather than a cost center, so to speak, uh, for your company in in finding ways to 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 improve return on invested capital.
1: No, and that's really fascinating. I mean, both from the concept of you know the rate environment that we find ourselves in, but as we move to real time payments, you, you know, you can fine tune that uh, you know down to the minute, uh, I guess. And, and sort of speaking of that, you know, you've had some interesting things to say about FedNow, which is a uh, the instant payment service that the Fed is launching in uh, in July, I guess. I and mean, what do you what do you see coming out of that that uh, that, that could change things in terms of that payment rail?
2: Well, it's great news for corporate treasurers, of course, because it is a real time payment system, and unlike RTP, it's not a pre funded real time payment system. It's going to be fascinating to see how the Fed handles the rollout of this, because obviously the Fed got blindsided, all the bank regulators got blindsided in the Silicon Valley situation with how fast a bank run could take place. And the impact of that with social media and information spreading fast, With plus online banking, the fact that a large bank like that could lose 25% of its deposits in the span of a few hours, literally all the deposits could walk out. could walk out the door. And one of the things that I said is, boy, I'm glad Fed now wasn't Operating yet? Because could you imagine that weekend? If Fed now had been operating, the the just there's a I think it was Hoover who who had the comment during the depression about all the capital just moving around the world like a um, like a like a cannonball on. A ship's deck in a tempest-tossed era—that yeah. um, you could just imagine. Just the, the rumor mill with Fed now, you know, money moving, people just moving deposits all over that weekend. And so, I think one of the interesting challenges that the Fed has is what kind of liquidity requirements are they going to po- require of the banks, given that it's not a pre-funded system, mm-hmm. um, and that after hours and on the weekends. Uh, it's really the Fed that is the liquidity provider implicitly. Um, yeah. and, and, and you know what does that mean from a national security perspective, as well as from the perspective of a corporate treasurer? You're probably going to have to watch your banks over the weekend just to be sure that there's not a bank run happening over the weekend. Now, how is the Fed going to handle that? One is the, the limitation on payments is $100,000. So for a lot of you, that's not going to be meaningful yet. Um, but, but as that limit goes up, it, it could be meaningful, but I also think what's going to end up happening. And of course, the, by the way, the banks can, can, can put a lower limit than that on it as well. But, uh, what I also think will happen is that payments will be gated. Right. And so one of the interesting things, hmm. uh, uh so, it's like moving, money, market like funds, exactly where you're not going to be able to move your money over the weekend if the bank's in trouble. Um, or if, if you see that, that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a Silicon Valley style bank run happening. Um, So I think that the whole question of liquidity management for corporate treasurers has massively changed. Now you, you pointed out, of course, interest rates um, having gone up suddenly, you know, keeping all your money in a zero interest rate account is Mm -hmm. not acceptable anymore. And post the financial crisis, of course, that's where a lot of corporate treasurers kept your money because interest rates were so low. It didn't really matter. The, the, the cost-benefit trade-off of of not having a basis point or two on your cash relative to not having any counterparty exposure to a bank um, it made a lot of <laughs> sense, right? But now that calculus has changed massively, and um, money market funds start making a lot of sense. But with technology, it's a lot easier to move money around with sweep accounts, with um, with with the uh, the with again online banking and now having the ability to move money over the weekends through stablecoins, the, the the whole notion of payment optimization and interest rate optimization is going to it already is, but it's going to become even more important in the next few years.
1: No, I totally agree, and I, and I think you you know the the crypto world you know starting with stablecoins, I, I, I really you know they operate in a in a in a twenty four seven environment uh, already. And, uh, and people are learning the lessons of, you know, how to operate in a, you know, always on liquidity world. How do you, and, and it feels like the regulators are, are, are not quite uh, grasping this and are kind of behind the curve there. I mean, what would you say the regulators need to do or what, what, what have they done so far that's been good or bad that uh, uh, could, be, could be helpful for, 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 for evaluating this going forward from a regulatory environment standpoint?
2: Well, unfortunately, most of what they've done is not good. Uh, they, they they've arguably um, well, they have debanked some of the stablecoin issuers and pushed them offshore. What we've actually seen is that the stablecoin volume hasn't gone down. It's just moved from the onshore, what I would call lit market, regulated market to the offshore euro dollar shadow banking market. Um, we've seen that that Tether has picked up for example a lot of the decline in volume from um, BUSD which was the Binance US dollar issued by Paxos as well as the decline in USDC which had money deposited at Silicon Valley Bank on the fateful weekend and obviously was a beneficiary of the guarantee of deposits uh, but there's been a debanking of crypto in the in the US market and So, again, most of you listening to this are multinational treasurers, so you can get your US dollar stablecoins redeemed at non US banks. Uh, It's really funny, um, and you and I, Joseph, were talking before we started. The Fed has made a concerted effort to move away from LIBOR to SOFR for floating rate US dollar debt. What is that really? It's designed to ensure that the counterparty credit risk of the banks on the LIBOR panel, in other words, European banks, for the most part --'t that, that that counterparty credit risk doesn't impact the U.S. economy like it did in 2008. Um, so if we think back to 2008, obviously LIBOR blew out. right? Back then everybody thought LIBOR was an interest was, was a risk-free rate. We now know it's not. But LIBOR spreads blew out. LIBOR itself blew out. Uh, And in effect, what that did was for multinational companies that had floating rate debt tied to LIBOR, it caused the counterparty credit issues at the European banks to come into the real economy. And so the Fed wanted to move away from that. I think that's a great move. They're moving to the secured overnight funding rate. Why do I bring that up in the context of crypto? Because that's the Fed trying to get the power away from the euro dollar market back into the domestic US market for the US dollar. Right. And the euro dollar market, it, it, it's hard to, 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 to measure, but it is probably bigger than the domestic U.S. dollar market. So the Fed is trying to get control of euro dollars by bringing them back on shore in effect by having the SOFR rate be the, the reference rate for floating rate debt. But here's the thing. By doing what they've done with stable coins, trying to shove it all into the shadows, they've just moved a huge portion of the new euro dollar market offshore. And uh so again because most of you are multinational you can go to a Zappo bank and get a US dollar stablecoin and it may never ever touch a US bank um but the point is it's US dollars and uh you know if you get comfortable with the with the bank there's no reason why you wouldn't use it to take advantage of Opportunities like the one I described, where there was a manufacturer in China uh, and there was an opportunity, and and this company earned two point six million dollars that it would not it would not have been able to earn had it had to wait for the money to move through Swift.
1: That's very interesting. So 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 uh, s- offshore U.S. dollar stablecoins with the new euro dollar with twenty four seven real time settlement.
2: Correct. Yep, but all kinds of counterparty risk, right? You've got to do your homework. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, they're certainly not going to be regulated by U.S. regulators. Uh, the U.S. made pretty clear, and unfortunately for, for in the Custodia case, Custodia actually was granted the patent for a tokenized bank deposit in the United States. Uh, and when the Fed de- de- declined our application, it was really because they didn't want us issuing a U.S. dollar. If you look at what they said, it was they don't want the tokenized U.S. dollar issued by a bank. Uh, and, uh, it's really unfortunate because we were the pathway to get that into the regulated us banking system. It's not over yet. It's far from over, but it's certainly not going to happen quickly. Uh, and, uh, and in the meantime, what's happening is there are us dollar stable coins transacting all over the world as we speak. And it's just yeah. that they're not in the us regulatory perimeter. So that does pose problems because you, you definitely want to know who your counterparty is whereas when you think about your counterparty credit exposure for moving money in traditional rails including swift you're going to do a counterparty Mm -hmm. credit risk analysis on your bank and understand as the money's in the swift black hole uh, and it hasn't come out the other side you know you've got settlement risk and what happens with blockchains is you may not trust your counterparty but that settlement risk is really short because you're talking about the span of probably minutes, not hours or days. And um, and so, you know, it's a trade-off, right? You may be willing to take that counterparty risk because you can see it on the blockchain. You know exactly where your money is. There is no black hole. But... Uh, you just don't want your stablecoin issuer to fail in the few minutes while your tr- your stablecoin is, it, it, you know, your transaction hasn't been confirmed on a blockchain yet. It's a very different settlement risk, but it's a lot faster. And I yeah. would say, I would argue probably a lot lower um, counterparty credit, or at least a lot lower settlement risk, because it's only out there for a couple of minutes, as opposed to potentially a couple of days.
1: Well, and that sort of gets to my, I, I've been joking with our, with our members that and we're all sort of headed towards a, a path where we're gonna have a direct account with the Fed via JP Morgan uh, the <laughs> step. Um, is is that a is that a viable future and what are some of the alternatives to that future from your perspective?
2: Well that is really where a, a retail CBdc would go I'm sorry, a, 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 a really a wholesale CBdc right where mm-hmm. where you get a central bank digital currency through a bank the Fed doesn't Do all the onboarding, all the BSA, AML, OFAC.
1: The Fed interface would be a nightmare. So you want to have somebody be the user interface to make it usable.
2: Correct, but that's all the banks do. In, in some ways, that's all the broker-dealers do for, for you opening up a broker's account is yeah. they're just doing the customer onboarding and the statements and the services around it. Most of the rest of it is done by software these days. Um, and you're not even really facing facing them as a balance sheet. And that may, that may be the way bank, banking evolves. I don't think so, though. Even if we go there on an interim step, and here's why. Because these new payment technologies in digital assets are really powerful um, and and I think they basically can just circumvent the entire banking industry, which is where the regulators need to be careful. Mm-hmm. already today, eight billion people the entire every every human being on planet Earth, with a cell phone, can create and transact in u s dollars if they know how to run the code. That is already true today. What am I alluding to? It is the layer two. Uh, uh, protocols that run on the Bitcoin and Ethereum networks. And the one that that I'm most excited about is called the Lightning Network. Now, the average Lightning payment is $45 right now. So it's not big enough to mean anything. But it's funny, when I remember first talking to your group in, I think, 2015, Mm -hmm. um, everybody (laughs) back then, you know, was was saying, Oh, this Bitcoin thing will never go anywhere. well here we're here we are eight years later and and look at where it is. Lightning is the same thing. Oh, it's only forty five dollars, pshaw. but wait until you until the until eight billion people start realizing they can transact on this in u s dollars, and all of a sudden liquidity starts to come into these protocols, and it completely circumvents the banking industry. Now, in some countries, I, I know some of the folks listening to this are already using crypto in countries where the where there isn't a well developed banking system. Yeah. Part of the reason I know that is because I helped introduce you to it uh, in one case, one of the Fortune 10 companies since 2014. Um, and and uh, this isn't the company, but uh, through through the work that I did with corporate treasurers, the former treasurer of Ford Motor Company, Neil Schloss, is an advisor to our company. So you know we great, really great are trying you. to. Great, uh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. He's one of my business heroes because he kept Ford funded during the 2008 financial crisis. And, and, and like all of you, you're, you know, you're working not in the, in the headlines, but the, the pressure that you've had to deal with, especially imagine that situation. Yeah. It's all publicly disclosed now that, um, that Ford sent a swap termination payment through Lehman Brothers on Lehman Weekend. And Neil sent that payment instruction on Friday night because it had to be in Tokyo by Monday morning, which was Sunday afternoon New York time, and that a couple, there a couple of days went by before they, they understood whether the money whether the payment was actually made by Lehman or not. And can you imagine? I know all of you can, right? That's your nightmare <laughs> scenario, right? But, uh, but, but the point is that these technologies are designed to solve that. You have visibility. You know where your payment is. It's, it, it's, there is no swift black hole. Your money doesn't have to go through a leveraged counterparty. Yeah. And so we really have better technologies. It's just that they're, they're in the nascent stages. And so most of you probably wouldn't think of using them except in, countries where you really don't have a safe alternative, and in which case it makes perfect sense to use them.
1: No, thanks, Caitlin. We've covered so much. It's always fascinating to talk to you. And maybe it's time to bring out the crystal ball and uh, and look to the future. You know, is what's happened in the in the last month and a half, two months, good or bad for the balance between traditional finance and, and, and Web3 finance? Has this been better for Web3 uh, or traditional finance in your view?
2: Oh boy, yes. Look at Bitcoin was up 70% during Q1 and it's continued to run. And so yeah. I, I I tend to think price is the least interesting aspect of Bitcoin. To me, it's that it's a technology play. But okay. you've seen crypto advance massively in this in in spite of the regulatory crackdown. While what we've learned is that in the traditional banking world, that even thanks to online banking we're able to move money around faster it's not as fast mm-hmm. as you can in in the crypto world but it's still a lot faster than the bank regulators were anticipating and so yeah. a bank like silicon valley bank can have 25% of its deposits disappear the bank regulators would run a stress test of 35% of demand deposits they had 25% of total deposits disappear and 35% of demand deposits within, say, a week, right? Those were the old stress tests that the bank regulators would run. That's not even remotely close to what can happen now. And of course, with rates having moved up, um, a lot of banks, if you do a mark-to-market of their interest rate positions, their U.S. treasuries, a lot of, co- especially community banks, have um, don't have much shareholders' equity left, and that's before they start facing loan losses from an economic slowdown. Plus, the loan portfolios are not marked to market for interest rate risk either. And of course, they do engage in maturity transformation. So no, I'm very worried about the, the, the community and regional banks in this country um, because of what's happened in and how fast interest rates moved up and how little prepared the both the managements and the bank regulators were for that. But a lot of you are probably thinking, well, gee, I only bank with a GSIB, a global systemically important bank, and so I'm fine. Well, go look at how much cash is sitting on those banks' balance sheets. They are definitely better capitalized, relatively speaking, because they had to hedge and they had to worry about their liquidity coverage ratio, but they only have 10% cash against deposits, right? So if they have a bank run, 10% is, is going to fly out the door really fast. So I think one of the lessons we're going to learn as these two different financial systems converge is that as transaction settlement speeds up, banks are just going to have to have a lot more cash on their balance sheet or central bank balance sheets are going to have to expand a lot. And that's going to offset quantitative tightening. And that's ultimately going to put a cap on their ability to continue to raise interest rates to fight inflation.
1: Does that mean from your perspective, the future of, uh, Uh, Fractional reserve banking is uh, in jeopardy?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Because fractional reserve banking rested on the notion that not everybody would come and get their money back at the same time. Yeah. Well, we just learned that thanks to social media and online banking, leaving crypto completely out of it, that Silicon Valley Bank. nothing crypto happened there that was just good old-fashioned rumor mill and instead of having to wait in line and fill out a handwritten form to withdraw your money it all happened electronically through online banking no it is absolutely the case that fractional reserve banking is is um i think going to have to be curtailed staggeringly in size because this is going to keep happening and, uh, yes, it's calmed down in the short term, but go look at the, at the balance sheets of the banking industry. And this does worry me a lot because, of course, c- the reason why the community banks and regional banks were not subject to the stress tests and got themselves in this position in the first place is because the, the deal was cut that the Basel III standards wouldn't apply to them because they are how credit gets recirculated back into small and medium sized businesses and into the agricultural industry and into rural communities, right? The big guys don't lend in, you know, a town that has 50 residents. Um, The big guys aren't, aren't lending to an individual farmer. That's your community bank. And yeah. so I don't know how. in places, places like Wyoming,
1: where you, where oh, you, sure. where you live, yeah, a-
2: a- absolutely, absolutely. So I, I, I don't know how this is all going to play out. Uh, I think that they're going to have to engineer, just like Greenspan did in the early '90s, a steep yield curve to recapitalize mm-hmm. the industry. Uh, it, it, they should have been. The bank regulators really missed it. They should have been requiring far higher capital. And, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon saw this coming, and uh, it was really news in January when he said they called off, J.P. Morgan called off their share repurchase facility, and that caused everybody to, to do a double take. Well, he saw this coming. Yeah, it, this isn't rocket science, though, folks. I mean, all of, you, all of you listeners probably saw this coming as well. If a bank's not hedging its interest rate risk, then it's going to have a pretty big underwater treasury portfolio and if that's not hedged <laughs> particularly
1: with the rate cycle we've seen yeah the rate hikes we've seen yeah yeah no it's fascinating but um yeah so it sounds like you're you know we're it feels like we're at a we're at an inflection point of some pretty massive changes on uh, on on both sides and uh, at, at the same time, bridging between the, the two worlds is, is going to be unstoppable, it feels like. Is that a fair statement? Yes,
2: it is. Completely agree. And uh, the engineers are going to keep coming up with ways to get around the the regulatory hurdles. The, the whole stablecoin market was born out of the debanking, the loss of correspondent banking, by an offshore crypto exchange called Bitfinex. And they were the ones that created the whole idea of a stablecoin, and that is real technology. And uh, and and you know, it, unfortunately, it's all being shoved offshore now, and uh, seemingly um, going into the shadows, which is where it began. But if you understand the origin of it, it was because of the lack of regulated alternatives that the industry the engineers figured out a way around it and that's just going to keep happening the bank regulators i think in the in the crypto industry are going to keep playing whack-a-mole that said though again your your audience is a multinational audience europe is about to pass the mica regulations which is going to create a a regulated pathway Mm -hmm. Um, we already have um swiss banks issuing swiss franc stable coins there are U.S. dollar stablecoins where you can transact um, in the offshore market with banks, yep. regulated banks, right? So, I mean, your your universe should not shy away just because the U.S. Re- bank regulators have shied away. There are other regulators in G7 markets that are that are running towards this technology. Um, kudos to them,
1: Caitlin. Really, a pleasure. I hope we have a chance to catch up again uh, in the not so distant future and best of luck to you, uh, including with your back and forth with the Fed.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Much appreciated. And and anybody reach out to me, um, info at custodiabank.com. If you have follow up questions, I'm happy to connect. I really my first love is the corporate treasury world. Really, I am trying to solve problems, real world problems that I worked with a lot of you on years ago. And uh, your, 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 your problem set is something that's very much on our minds. And we're trying to just plug away to, to help you get new solutions to your real world problems.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Neu Strategic Finance Lab podcast. Please join us next time for more insights about the future of finance in the office of the CFO. I'm Anthony Michaels, editor of Noid Group Insights.